Welcome to The Missing Link, a podcast where crypto and insurance come together. I'm Dan Roberts, and my co-host is Danielle Wall-Elliott. Whether you're in crypto, traditional finance, or in need of a new podcast, The Missing Link will help you explore the vital role that insurance plays in crypto and how blockchain will disrupt insurance. Join us on our journey to find The Missing Link. The Missing Link is brought to you by Names. Names is an on-chain insurance marketplace where you can access exclusive opportunities for yield on your crypto with diversified portfolios of risk through insurance as an asset class. Names is revolutionizing the insurance sector and bringing the marketplace into the 21st century through tokenization, innovation, and transparency. Hello, everyone. Today, we are joined by Martin Karika, the co-founder of Mountain Protocol, uh, Mountain Protocol are the issuer of USDM, the first regulated permissionless yield-bearing stablecoin uh, licensed by the Bermuda Monetary Authority. So we're great to have another Bermuda-regulated entity with us. Uh, he takes us through the stablecoin landscape, talks about how he's getting his whole family onto stablecoins, hopefully more USDM than others. Uh, we really love this conversation, particularly if you want to earn yield on your capital uh, and what that means for not just institutional investors, but for retail investors, then this episode is for you. Enjoy. Hi, Martin. How are you today? Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's so good to see you. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to even supersede our lightning round uh, this time was I wanted to dig in a bit more to your background. I find it really compelling. I feel like you you know, had a specific need uh, for stable coins and then, you know, even for a yield bearing stable coin. And so, you know, I wanted to see um, you've lived through bank runs, government fiat failures um, and seen Argentina reaching inflation 100 percent year over year. Can you elaborate more on your background and how did that motivate and influence you to launch Mountain Protocol? Awesome. So um, caveat, the inflation last three months in Argentina is at 200% plus annualized. So if you look at the chart of inflation, we are hitting uh, the highest inflation since the last hyperinflation in 1989. It's insane. So I'll send you the link. I think it would be good to put in the show notes. Okay. Um, anyone looking to explore time value of money, hop on a plane to Argentina. Um yeah, it's the, the Roman Coliseum of, of centralized exchanges and kind of time value of money. And you, you can see all of that. And uh, it's a great place for innovation. But my background, uh, born in Argentina, kind of like I was a, a, a kid during the Coralito in 2001, but kind of like always been around uh, financial restriction, right? Uh, Argentina, not, a, not the best run economy, lots of limitations. My first salary, um, the peso inflation at that time was low, 40% only. Uh, so I purchased uh, Bitcoin with my friends because it was the easiest way to access a, a token that at least didn't go down in value at 40%. Bitcoin was up and down, right, uh, as it usually is, but it was way more stable than than than, than the peso. And that that kind of was my introduction to, to crypto before uh, Coinbase started. Uh, I actually was part of the Mt. Gox um, receiverships, so still waiting for my Bitcoin there. Um, and since then, I've been involved in the space. Um, my family still lives in Argentina, so very connected to how do you actually access good financial products. And crypto has been an amazing place uh, to do that. My career, I went into bank traditional banking, risk, launching new products. I participated in launching two high-yield checking accounts. So to me, that's an obvious product, right? Like if the risk-free rate of a government is X, why wouldn't you get X if you're taking the risk of that asset anyways? 
so they were they were uh, one of those was Goldman Sachs, Marcus, and then there was a second one, and I told about it uh, about that to anyone, right? Like crypto is too risky. At least open an account like this if you can, right? If you're in the U.S. Um, and then when Luna happened, I was like, okay, time for the third high yield checking account, right? Rates in crypto went to zero. Rates in the U.S. started increasing. I was like, okay, now we can build a high yield checking account uh, for the world. And the best way to do that is crypto rails because you can serve any anyone can integrate you very very easily, and um, that led that led us to to building Mountain Protocol, and I think we're going to talk a little uh, about it a, a bit more in the, in the episode. Well, one one more thing I wanted to touch on, you know, a lot of times even in this podcast, a lot of times when I give talks, you know, I'll use my mom as an example, and I'll say, you know, it's so easy, even my mom can use it. Love you, mom. You're you're great. But I love using, you know, mom, grandma. I've heard you say your mom uses stable coins. And I just thought that was great. Could you talk a little bit more about that? You know, what what motivates your family to, you know, actually use this on a regular basis? Totally. So um if you think about a a country where purchasing uh US dollars is not allowed unless you have a permission from the government, which is very hard to get, as you would imagine, the rate today is like one thousand pesos per dollar in the blue market, which is like what actually trades, the official rate is like at 350. So it's like almost a 30 to one. So whoever got, has access has free money because you can arbitrage at a three X. So no one gets mm -hmm. it. Now, my mom has two options. She can either go to a shady, like we call it cave, right? Like to a shop, you have to count the dollars. Maybe those are fake. Uh, you can get robbed when you get out of there and so on. Or she can go on her phone send some pesos through a local payment network and receive stable coins. She can then host those stable coins herself, protect them, and then she has dollars, right? And then she can send them to me or she can do whatever. We actually did, um, my grandma is already now starting to buy stable coins. I convinced her because the, um, the crypto market now is so efficient that the spread is lower than the cave market, which is the biggest. So I told her, you're saving X amount of dollars on your purchase and you get like this amount of dollars extra. And like, she's Italian, right? So like, um, oh, that, that, that like, okay, I'm going to say five bucks. It makes sense. So she bought on crypto too. So um, it is the utility and the efficiency that we always talk about that yeah. brings people more into, into crypto. And then um, our hope is that Mountain Protocol will even increase that, right? Because uh, we become a better dollar than a dollar that you have like on self-custody on paper on your home. Yeah. I think so often, especially in the U.S. or in the West, like we don't have those problems. And so we don't see exactly the solution that stable coins or crypto can provide. And so, you know, thanks for sharing those real world use cases with us. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like uh, you have your whole family getting into the stablecoin uh, trade, which stablecoin, you know, are they early users of USDM uh, <laughs> or are they using competitors? What's going on? Yeah. So my family in particular, yes, uh, but it's forced on them, of course, mm -hmm. um, by me. We still are only on Ethereum. That is like Ethereum gas fees have spiked. Uh, it is not reasonable for a, uh, an individual to trade on Ethereum, right? Like it's it's too expensive. Uh, I think that's the objective of Ethereum is going to be more uh, enterprise and a settlement layer. We're launching L2s so that my mom can like actually be in Ethereum because it's worth it. Um, mm -hmm. But if you look at the average person in Argentina, in most emerging markets that I've been to, they use USDT on Tron. And the reason is USDT has a lot of network effects. It's accepted super widely. And the Tron reason is Tron was the first network to understand decentralization, 
is important, but price is even more important. Mm. Today is not the cheapest, but now it has the network effects. Uh, and, and many, many L2s are trying to go in and, and kind of break those. Um, but yeah, Tron is still king. Right. Yeah, the efficiency has to be there, or like the utility has to be there. There's a there's a you know grand vision that brought everyone here, but it has, it still has to compete uh, and and improve on what what's already come before outside of some of those initial ideas. So great to hear. And you know, forced forced USDM use within the family. Uh, I think I should get my my mom into the trading secondary uh, insurance exposure. Exactly. Yeah, and what I would say, right, like um, in, in crypto circles, we discuss a lot about the risks of USDT and the risks of Tron and decentralization and so on. But what we don't put in perspective is you compare those with the risk of the Argentinian banking system, right? So if you say, I'll have a dollar in the Argentinian banking system whose dollars are in reserve in the Argentinian central bank, which is technically broke, or I can have USDT on Tron, it's still 10, 10x better, right? So mm-hmm. When you put those things into perspective, you understand why um, folks are are moving out of whatever they're in into into USDT and Tron. So it's not, yeah, it, it, there there may be better uh, risk assumptions in in many other products. We try to, of course, increase the the the, the safety of our products ourselves. Uh, but the status quo for most people, even when they move into those products, there's a 10x um, improvement in in guarantees. Very cool. Well, yeah, Martin, it's great to have you here. Um, quick lightning round uh, for you. So, just some some very uh, quick fire questions to you know, for the, for our audience to get a sense of uh, where you may be. Um, so, rate your knowledge in crypto uh, from one to ten, and uh, a very brief elaboration. I would say stable coins probably an eight or nine out of ten. Uh, crypto in general uh, and DeFi in particular, and then the cryptographic right infrastructure. I would say a thirty-four, right? Like. Uh, my background is very strong TradFi. I'm not a, a massive crypto person, right? Like gotcha. I'm still learning a lot of that and uh, I enjoy it. Sure. Well, the space is always lucky to have, you know, deep TradFi expertise. So that's great to hear. Uh, rate your knowledge in insurance, one to 10. Uh, that's our elk. Two. FDAC, that's as far as I go. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Well, uh, yeah, more more to come in the uh, yeah, mountain names uh, saga. Um, how many jurisdictions did you consider uh, before landing in Bermuda? Consider at least 10. Uh, engage legal counsel, five, uh, mm-hmm. where we spend at least $1 on legal counsel looking at those and then kind of get deep legal analysis too. So we, we spend a lot of time. We're like speed dating countries, exactly. basically. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's, it's always changing. Um, I yeah. think if you were to do it again, you would probably change. I think there's um yeah a whole you know new conversation about how that speed dating went and you know what's going on in the general space. There seems to be a a really cool um progress on the you know major you know onshore jurisdictions as well. So that there's some real interesting dynamics going on. Um favorite thing about being uh you know being a CEO running running a, a startup. I think there's a speed, right? Like you can move and build the, the organization to, to move fast. Uh, I think financial, uh, regulated financial businesses tend to um, justify moving slow because mm-hmm. of risk considerations. And I think uh, like being a CEO, you can actually place the trade-off and think, okay, what's at risk here? And sometimes uh, we move slower than we should 
uh, in, in the, the regulated financial space. And uh, yeah, pushing that is, is what I like. Very cool. And uh, final one, least favorite thing? Every like I don't sleep. Um, <laughs> I wake up at I don't know five. I work till like twelve. Got you. Got <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, the, the lot, lots of philosophy around uh, how much sleep you know you should be getting. The, there's some villainization and idealization around that. So uh, so yeah, try try and get some good sleep. But cool. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, yield generation in crypto. I feel like that is the name of the game. You know, we've had staking, we've had kind of fakey rewards, and now we're really pushing towards more of this tokenization of real world assets. You know, on the missing link, we love to talk about that. We think you know that's what we're doing at Names. Um, and, you know, obviously, USDM, by creating a yield bearing uh, stablecoin has made, uh, you know, some revolutionary moves in this space. But what I wanted to ask you about was how else does USDM differentiate itself from the rest of the stablecoins? I thought we could go a little bit deeper, not just mm -hmm. the yield. What else is, is making it, you know, more secure, better? Yeah, I would say outside of the yield, the other part uh, is we built a stablecoin in 2023, right? 2022, 2023. Uh, what that means is, A, uh, regulation is now a must, right? Like you cannot launch a stablecoin. To me, stablecoins are a tokenized bank deposit. That's how they should be regulated. Um, and uh, Bermuda, of course, offers that regulation and, and those guarantees. I feel the market still is uh, a little bit behind in, in understanding the regulation versus regulation exception versus uh, the, the levels of regulation that you can have. Uh, but that's that's a big one. And there's a lot of guarantees that come uh, around being regulated. The second one where we differentiate ourselves uh, pretty bigly is on our uh, management of the reserves. Specifically, we don't have any bank deposits, right? Or we keep nominal bank deposits. And the reason is uh, March 2022, so, sorry, March 2023, yeah, this year, um, there was a, a bank run on, on SBV and the second largest stablecoin, there were questions whether it was solvent. The The biggest question around that was holding a, a larger balance of deposits in, in banks and banks in the end is a licensed, unsecured hedge fund, right? Like they invest in, in mortgages, in car loans, in credit cards, but essentially you're lending money against uh, unsecured against a portfolio of assets. And if that goes down, good luck. The issue with banking is it's it's the riskiest part of the chain. And there's an adverse selection where the banks that you work with tend to be the banks that need you the most. And those are the ones that have the highest likelihood of having a, of having a problem. So being very cognizant of the portfolio of, of whatever real world asset you're working with, what is their their bank exposure and which banks they are and you can easily go into like their banks go into fitch get the rating if it's not triple a double a yeah uh, probably some some questions to be answered so what do you do instead so to provide so the question is that's a stable coin right um people want to get in and out very quickly so if you don't have bank deposits you have to have another another arrangement in order to provide that liquidity what we did is an arrangement with a large otc Wintermute in this case, which did a risk assessment on Mountain Protocol, and they said, we'll take USDM one-to-one. We'll give you that USDC whenever you need it. So they take it out of whatever markets they're making. They send it to us. That can happen on a Saturday, right? So now you have redemptions on Saturdays, which you cannot do with bank deposits. And uh, essentially, when the market opens on Monday morning, we sell the T-bills 
on ramp and then repurchase that USDM from Wintermute. So essentially, they act as a buffer between the customer redemption request and the T bill kind of TradFi timeline, which might take T plus two. They are holding the asset in, in the USDM during that period of time. And that allows you to have a very large, large redemption guarantee because you're talking about a very big balance sheet in terms of Wintermute without any exposure to bank deposits. Wow. And uh, am I right? Also, you segregate customer deposits in a, a unique way. Um, that is how the BMA requires it, right? So um, whenever you're holding customer deposits, whether you're an exchange, whether you're a stablecoin issuer, uh, you are required for those assets to not be uh, to be segregated from company states. So in the case of liquidation, let's say we go under for whatever reason, the USDM depositor shouldn't be waiting for 10 years for the bankruptcy procedure to finish and get their deposits back. Company estate, yes, there will be that procedure. USDM deposits, so USDM holders, T-bills are liquidated, cash gets uh, concentrated and then distributed to USDM holders uh, pretty quickly. And um, I think that that is, that is how brokers work. That is how custodians work. It is natural that stablecoin should work the same way. Yeah. And so just for all listeners, how, that. yeah, <laughs> shout out. Um, yeah. How are you licensed? Uh, you mentioned the BMA, the Bermuda Monetary Authority, uh, you know, what you, you talked about tokenized bank deposits. What, what does that look like? What clarity did you guys get in 2022, 2023 as you were looking yeah, at? Yeah. So the, the specific license we got is issuing of, uh, digital assets for the purpose of USDM. So there mm -hmm. is no banking. Uh, description in, in our license. Uh, the other license we got is um, custodial wallet services, so we can custody your USDM when you're using the platform, but that's kind of like a side effect of us running our main business. But if you look at the content of the regulation, the main thing uh, that gets looked at, of course, uh, AML, right? So you have to be compliant. Uh, everyone, I think, will go in that direction and cyber, but the main one is prudential. And if you look at the spirit of those regulations, they look exactly like a bank. Right. Uh, the only thing that they don't have is on the credit side. We you don't have credit modeling and, and so on because we don't extend credit. Well, we extend only to the U.S. government in very short term, so like a very very easy to assess credit risk profile. But outside of that, the provincial regulation looks exactly the same. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, the, there's definitely been a, a wave of excitement around this sort of model. Uh, you know, just the general kind of yield-bearing stable coins. How do you see the landscape at the moment? It must be changing quite quickly, and you're at the front of that. Uh, how are you? Uh, how are you guys as a business approaching that? Yeah, so I think there's four um, models of of, of stable coins. Right, stable coins will accrue value. The question is to whom, right? So on one end of the spectrum, you have a CBDC. Right, a CBDC will probably not pay any yield, so the yield is kept by the government. Right, so uh, in the whatever government issues, the central bank will essentially keep that yield. You have uh, the circle or tether model where the issuer keeps the yield, and then the issuer will spend that yield on marketing, and they will kick back like USDC on Coinbase, and there will be some arrangements. But in general, the issuer keeps all the yield. You have the model of uh, the broker, right? So um, verified USD, USDV launched recently, and mm. their model is we'll pay the broker uh, or the person influencing your purchase to incentivize using your uh, the stablecoin. So instead of uh, having the, the, the bank, sorry, the, the central bank or the issuer, they are paying it to the broker. 
In this case, a Wintermute, if they sell USDV, they're going to make the yield on that USDV's lifetime. And then the last uh, Paxos also falls very, very much here, right? Like the model with Binance USD is paying Binance uh, to put their, their stamp. Yeah. They're working with PayPal, right? So paying the broker. And then the final model is paying the holder, right? We think the holder is going to win because in the end, you have to have a reason to hold the asset. Um, right. And there's a there's a couple, SDI, I think is the other big one that's paying the holder. Uh, they are by far the largest, uh, the largest coin out there. Our way of competing is we want to provide the lowest risk uh, token out there that pays you uh, something around the risk-free rate. So it's low minimum counterparty risk, minimum uh, regulatory risk. So minimizing all those risks, and that's that's the market we're going after. Um, and I think there's space for others like SDI targets decentralization, right? So if you're if you worry about decentralization, um, SDI is probably the, the, the path that you're going to go. I think there's space for for many uh, holder focused yield bearing stablecoins. SDI is single collateral die from make a, is is that what you're referring to or is it? It's uh, savings die. So uh, yeah. you, you stake on uh, with die, and essentially there's a uh, the governance decided to funnel revenue, which most of that is coming from T bills today. The die savings, right? Exactly the, the DSR yeah. into the the SDI. But this is the this is the make a DAO, um, you know, make a you know foundation project. Exactly. Got you, and you know another area that does fascinate me and it sort of links into the landscape that you've just you know painted there is how do you guys as a company consider your go-to-market like, you know you spoke a lot about you know the argentinian uh you know story there uh the like there's a real demand and you know it's going all the way up to the the grandmothers of the world um you know that that that's the kind of you know perfect scenario that you'd want is that people are you know completely chomping at the opportunity to be able to use something like that uh maybe less so in other jurisdictions do you think of go to market in terms of jurisdictions in terms of different economies uh or is there another way uh, to think about this we think about it in terms of use cases and uh the use cases we can fit best at different stages of the company right i think Today, uh, we, we just launched. We have uh, we're going to be around 12 million in in TVL uh, at the end of the day today with a new minting. That means we're a new stablecoin, right? Whoever is jumping in is either a crypto degen, I would say, so someone who's used to taking uh, risk on new on new assets, or it's a very sophisticated player that can understand the risk. For 99% of the population, they look at the TVL and that's enough to like cross and not and not not continue exploring our, our stablecoin. So right now we're very focused on those two those two two personas. The sophisticated um player today, they usually have a like have already gone into US treasuries. So we have to go into who has not gone into US treasuries with our differentiation, which is permissionless. In particular exchanges is the biggest one because exchanges they have a, a custody setup that requires the asset to be an ERC-20 that they can move freely, that they don't have to be signing a bunch of transactions, whitelisting a bunch of addresses. So exchanges is where we're getting uh, the most traction today. Soon, I think there are going to be uh, DeFi integrations that we're working on that will bring some uh, some digits in. So I think that's, the, that's who we're going after immediately right now. Our best case go-to-market uh, for the second phase, which is you're starting to build up, 
TVL is no longer an issue. I think above 100 million TVL is no longer a concern. You're talking about more conservative organizations that understand the risk. They look at the TVL, it checks, and they can start getting in. It's protocols, it, it's names, it's uh, GMX, so that you can leave USDM as collateral for uh, for opening a derivatives position. It's Ave, so it's a, a lot of like uh, more institutional finance um, use cases. And I think you start getting into retail. And then I think the third, probably after a couple billion, it's like re like my mom holding it, right? Like uh, someone, like my mom, no, but like my mom's friends, right? Who don't That's know. That's a big ask if you want to exactly. take it from two to 10 billion, you know, your mom's going to have to really double Exactly. Down. She has, has to get a lot of friends. <laughs> but I think retail is a very strong, like Tether growing through the bear market is an example of the power of retail. And uh, the second is more traditional uh, companies. We have a lot of lots of outreaches from payment companies, like companies that have working capital sitting there. And they're like, that working capital is working for the bank instead yeah. of working for me. And yeah. they want to move in. Those will require a lot more before they get in. They require us to be rated. They require us to be bigger. There's a bunch of integration. They want to see more time, years of, of, of history without any regulatory problems. Uh, but that's that's the that's the big money. That's how you go from five billion to a hundred billion. Right? Like that that's where the big, big money is. Yeah. Well, and that that resonates with me. Like my my kind of, I guess probably would fit more in that DGEN category, but like my friends, you know, my people my age that got into crypto early, you know, none of those like traditional finance things really interested me. I was like, I'm not gonna do a 401k, I'm gonna buy ETH, I'm not gonna do this when it, you know, and so this is a cool way to bridge that gap where, oh, I, I don't have any way to participate in, you know, earn uh, that that um, rate, but now I can. Now I can kind of still keep my feet in crypto and still keep that kind of degen aspect of it, but then still earn some of that yield. I think that's, you know, brilliant. Yeah, then, then you know, there's a real... There is a real retail story and and it's a major win for this kind of technology um, of saying that you you know, because of the rebasing mechanism that you have and and the yeah the what or the composability that uh, digital assets allow is that you could imagine you know retail users holding capital that they're going to use on their groceries uh and uh, you know having exposure before they buy the groceries uh to you know the the market rate and and yeah that's not the case at the moment you very much have to segment your capital in the traditional space into you know you've got a small amount of liquid capital in a current account and then you've got savings and wherever else you know above that if you're lucky um investments equities but it goes on uh and and here there's a potential or you know perhaps you know it's already the case it's just ready to scale where you can actually kind of bring that back to current account type liquidity where you're able to go out and spend and live your life and you have these kinds of exposures because you know you're, you're able to track where the where those dollars are and and you know who, who's gonna generate the return is that is that a right way of thinking about that, that kind of two to that, 10 10 to 20 you know 25 yeah, that's billion a, that's the right way and i think that the mental model is if you look at high yield checking accounts you can now earn the yield until you spend the money right yeah so right. High yield checking accounts showed that that retail wants these products, right? Mm -hmm. um, but high yield checking accounts are only available in the US. And mm -hmm. offshore, they're only available to like very large companies, right? They're like not available to me. My bank gives me like one cent. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, thank you. 
Thank you yeah, for that. You should go to rate. Compare. It's like laughing at you. Yeah, it's laughing wallets. at me. It's insulting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 there are those. I think if you're in the US, um, going to a high yield checking account, FDIC insured for your first two fifty k is probably mm. a no brainer. Uh, if you have your 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 money not paying you five percent in a bank, uh, you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table. And when you do the math, you're like, man, uh, this yeah. is like, I don't know, a couple of gifts for for Christmas that you could be Thanks. paying every year. Um, and and this exists, right? If you go to uh, Argentina, for example, Argentina is, is an amazing case study because the time value of money is so big, right? Like in three days, you get one percent. Right, so like over a weekend, you get a hundred bits of, of yield. Wow. So like everything, like there's a lot of innovation. The biggest, the Venmo of Argentina pays you hundred percent on your pesos today, right? And and that is becoming the wallet that people use on their day to day basis. Um, the where, where, how I think we can fit there is you could keep your savings in dollars, collateralize a, a card and start spending in pesos. And then whenever you, you get paid your salary, you just uh, send your salary to pay that credit card. And essentially you start, you continue saving in dollars. You never have to spend them. Uh, you just use them as collateral for your card. And that way you can underwrite an individual without any credit score. Cool. So I think there's a lot of retail retail use cases. Um, and then of course the, the the enterprise use cases, right? Like the names, the collateral of names should be paying five percent, right? It's it's ridiculous yep. that, it, that, it, that it's not. Um, if you are doing an import and you're sending money to an escrow, that escrow should be earning five percent. Um, if you are in an LP position, and uh, if you think about the future of forex, if it's going to be in DeFi, there's going to be a Uniswap pool that trades uh, USD to Euro. Both those ends should be earning the risk-free rate of those assets. So USDM should be there earning whatever the the, the Fed is paying. And euro should be earning theirs, and then the fee should be making on top so that professional investors can participate there and earn above the risk-free rate. So I think every every dollar out there and every essentially fiat asset should be earning the, the, the risk-free rate. And we're doing our job for the dollar, and there's other teams doing their job for other other assets out there. You identified, you know, four areas of stable coins. That area of you know, the largest stable coins right now where they're earning the rate. Do you think that they will move more to this model where they will pass on the the yield to their users? Following the stable coins are banks. And in my experience in banks, this discussion comes often and banks still pay 0%. And if you look at the US, Bank of America, JP Morgan, uh, Wells Fargo, they pay you 10 bps or like nominally zero. Mm. Why can they do that? Because people still stay. Right? Mm -hmm. And the math, they're not going to move and destroy their revenue from 100% to less than 10% unless they have like an existential threat. If they get really threatened by you, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> exactly. But that those finance is slower than most people think. Right. And I think the best example of that is maker uh, savings die. The, the risk assumptions that you're making from going from die to savings die, it's the exact same. You don't have any additional risk, but the utilization of savings die is less than 25% of the whole die issuance. Mm. So you're talking, there's like literally like very easily addressable zero additional risk and you're getting 5%. And, 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 and that's, that's what the demographic of very forward thinking, you know, users, right? Not, not your you know, traditional, I don't want to know, stick my head in the sand, you know, finance nuts. So 
uh yeah that that's a good point actually it's like the space that is literally by definition uh experimenting with new financial opportunities and tools you know that there's still that discrepancy between dines and sdi or, or yeah the dice exactly. right yeah, so yeah. so if you, if you if you think about the general economy that number is, is 10 of 25 is going to be five percent two percent yeah yeah, I don't yeah, know. It's, yeah. Like, it's like minimal makes sense yeah. do you have any um so i feel like we've talked pretty large scale if you had to kind of zoom in on just 2024, do you have any predictions for the stablecoin, you know, landscape or maybe what does it look like? How does it change if there is a bull market next year? Yeah, come um, on, Danielle. Yeah, that's a that's a good <laughs> question. Uh, I'm if, still saying if, to, sorry, if there's a bull market. Yeah, if if when um it, 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 it it's hard to predict, right? Because these things Lindiness is very hard to predict when lindiness starts to kick in and, and these things start to transform. There's a bunch of projects on stealth uh, kind of like launching out. Uh, I think I like what I, I can strongly predict is the, the model two where the issuer keeps all the money. I think that model was, will continue to shrink. And then model three and model four around like keeping it on the, on the broker. I think the broker has a lot of power, um, which it is it is easy to underestimate, but like PayPal USD, they're growing a lot, and like they're they're paying brokers a lot of money to get to get PayPal USD out there. Uh, I think USDV also has a, has a lot of potential, and then paying the holder. Um, I think th this is where the growth is going to happen, right? Um, hopefully, Tether continues to grow because they have their network effects already there. So it's like the Kagar of whatever retail and, and kind of uh, uh, adoption of state natural adoption of stablecoins. I think as these things become to start to become more robust, part of that growth will transition into uh, into models three and four. So I think you'll see a lot more of, of the of the latter models. So it sounds like you don't see them necessarily as, I mean, competitors in a way. But it's you know, if everyone succeeds, it's good for for all the stablecoins. I so stablecoins today is one twenty billion market, pretty small. Uh, it, it was almost like I think one sixty or one seventy prior to Luna exploding. The U.S. dollar size is twenty trillion. So you're talking, you're still talking about peanuts, right? In the end, the 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 way to win is expanding how many dollars get into crypto. That is that is the biggest uh, the biggest win here. It's not competing between one coin and the other. It's like how do you build new use cases that convince people to instead of going through the SWIFT, through uh, ACH, through uh, paper money, whatever that is, moving into crypto dollars. That, that's where the growth is. Yeah, and, and and also I feel like it, there's not it's not a single company that in different sectors that's driving regulatory clarity and regulatory progress. It's use cases that come with lots of uh, lots of companies behind them. So yeah, the more uh, stable coins in in your example that come through these different pieces, the more clarity on the regulatory side there's going to be, the more adoption that there's going to be, and and I feel like there's a uh, there's been a decent amount of work that's been, uh, you know, that's happened with stablecoins over the last, you know, eight plus uh, years. Uh, and then particularly with this kind of model, you guys are, are in a great position. I feel like, you know, in the venture space, which has gone through a, a sort of tightening, there's still been, you know, really great flow into uh, your use cases. And as that kind of eases, uh, you know, you're going to be very well positioned um, from a co competitive standpoint as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely. The more the merrier, really. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the, the space has a general, obviously it uses a competitive tension, uh, for good effect, but there's a great kind of openness to learning that projects are, are able to, um, yeah, integrate into their own solutions. So yeah, very, very, uh, excited, uh, you know, for you guys love the TVL milestone as well. Congratulations on that front. Um, you know, we're, we're very excited to be watching from the sidelines on, on how you guys continue to grow and, and see the use case, uh, within, you know, names and, and in other places continue to grow. Um, you know, final question, uh, I guess from us, you know, the missing link, uh, you, you actually touched on a few throughout the talk that I thought would fit well into this, uh, this question. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll maybe comment uh, on that afterwards, but. You know, for now, what do you see as a, a key missing link uh, in this digital asset, you know, general space that uh, is still left to tick off before that kind of, you know, trillion to $20 trillion uh, gap is filled? Yeah. So um, if you think about the, the fundamentals of some of the products that are existing in crypto today, they are 10x better than the products on, on TradFi, right? Um, and the, the argument is anyone who starts operating on crypto, they a vendor sends them a fiat payment and they're like, yeah. So like once you go, yep. it's hard, it's hard to go back to, to fiat. Oh. Um and the question is why are not more people moving into crypto? So what is what is stopping them? I think there's a couple of things. A regulation is still something that most people in crypto are against. And I think for some models regulation stops innovation. But for other models, especially models where there's a natural tension between the company to take more risk and the user not being able to enforce the company to not take that risk. Uh, traditionally, banks or insurance companies or in general, anyone holding assets on behalf, on behalf of customers, regulation is still kind of a new thing, right? Like uh, how many com regulated crypto companies are out there? I think if it's 50, it's too many, right? Like it's probably less than that uh, operating. So we need to get regulation that that, that people know how to assess, right? And there's a lot of like fake regulation advertisement and so on. So like the regulation clarity, I think is coming, but also how do you separate from good regulation versus kind of like, I am regulated, but you're actually not. So I think, I think that's a big one. And then kind of like making that regulation more widespread, especially in the US, right? In the US it's very, very hard uh, to be operating. And most companies in the world, large, large capital allocators are in the US. So. They, they have a portion of their of their operations in the US, so they don't want to be touching these these assets. And that creates a lot of, okay, if this company is not doing, why is it? Right? Like they must have a reason. And that is stopping a lot of, of other companies elsewhere from, from moving in. And uh I would say the last one is service providers, right? Audit firms are getting stopped from working on crypto. Uh banks are getting stopped from working on crypto. So a bunch of the high quality service providers uh, are being blocked. For reputational reasons, mainly we still have, haven't come to the conclusion that compliance is very good in crypto. So there's that's a big flag that's been getting, uh, been getting used against the space. So if we can get the, those parties and say a KPMG to come in and say, yes, the, like this audit is, is is accurate, and you can have like that level of stamps in, uh, mm -hmm. that that will that will help us better. Moody's right, like credit ratings uh, would right. be another strong one. So I would say regulation get like regulation across, across the main jurisdictions. So not only uh, Bermuda, Singapore, the UK, but also the US 
and then kind of like the high quality service providers to jump into the space. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah feels like we're, uh, you know, the missing links, plural uh, still, um, but uh, no, very, very interesting. And, you know, one thing that struck me, I guess, about the conversation was that there, sometimes I feel a sentiment where, you know, DeFi summer, retail investors came in and interacted, there was a great boom, what's the next stage from, you know, going to 100 billion to a trillion in DeFi, or go, you know, it's, it's institutional, it's institutional, whereas, it uh, hopefully that continues to grow and be the case, but it feels like there's a real opportunity to open up to a proper retail market as well. Um, it's not like, okay, retail's come in, that was fun. Now on to institutions and, and all the regulatory pieces that are needed around that. There is still very much a, a retail opportunity here, which goes way, way, way beyond what we've seen. So um, yeah, very eye-opening uh, for me, Martin. Thank you. And I um, think when you think about retail, I think there's retail like my mom and there's also retail almost like an SME and SMEs are, are a big player that has not participated in crypto thus far. Mm. We're seeing some companies start to pop up and, and say, we'll build the best bank for an SME of like a hundred people in Argentina and we'll connect to the local payment network, but you also have a dollar, a euro, a Brazilian REI, a stable account, a stable coin account. You don't see it's a stable coin, like you just see the dollar. If you go to terms and conditions, you'll find it, but they're making it very easy for the user. It's crypto on the back, it's fintech on the front. People are used to it. So I think that is going to be, that for retail and for SMEs is going to be a, a massive uh, kind of like TVL uh, bringer. Very cool, yeah. Thank I, you, Martin, I, I, so much for, oh, go ahead, Dan. No, it's just, a, you know, I, I, it's great to hear other players, obviously, you know, pushing in their different verticals as well, because, you know, we see the rating agency piece in the insurance landscape, you know, insurance specific. We see the SMEs coming in that have nothing to do with crypto that see the benefit from an insurance perspective using this. And obviously that happens across lots of other verticals. So, uh, so yeah, thank you for all the work that you guys are doing. So much Thank still to, to learn and, and so much still for us to do and, and work together. Uh, last thing, I just want to say, Martin, if people want to find you or learn more about Mountain, Mountain Protocol, where should they go? Yeah, for Mountain Protocol, uh, X is the best uh, source of, of information. Mount, uh, at Mountain USDM is the, the, the address, um, mountainprotocol.com. For myself, at mkarika on Twitter. I also write on Substack. I want to write this article around like the four issuers and, and how you think about those. So uh, if you subscribe, you'll receive that whenever whenever it comes out. Mm, I will. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Take care, Thanks guys. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Well. Thank you. Bye. We're one step closer to finding the missing link. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to come back next month. Until then, we are The Missing Link.